Hello. Welcome to How to Write a Play. I'm Alex. I work for the Old Fire Station Arts Centre in Oxford and we're currently running a playwriting course with Triple Olivier Award winner Mike Bartlett. Stay tuned for Mike's advice, writing tips, writing exercises, answers to questions from listeners and our thoughts on the theatre world in 2023. Today we're talking about making political theatre and Mike, what are we covering in the course? We're covering story and, brace yourself, dialectic. Coming up at the Old Fire Station this week, we have, on the 17th of May, Oxford Platforms. So you may not know this, Mike, but you are not the only playwriting course in Oxford. There is another one run by John Rosalek, who is of many things, director of Company of Angels. He has been associate director at the Old Vic. He is very accomplished and has written many, many plays and radio plays. And he runs a course in Oxford. And we've started doing a new writing night every few months here at the old fire station. So he selects a play from his class and then directs a rehearsed reading of that play. And this week we have a play called Chemistry by a writer called Joe Watt, which is about a widower and his daughter trying to come to terms with the death of his wife and her mother. And is he going to date again? And how do you, how do you find love? And it's it's really charming. I've read the script and it's absolutely oh. lovely. So that's going to be really good. That's really it's a great. It's a, I did know about the course actually, and I also know Joe actually. And it's great, isn't it? Great to follow it through from the course all the way through to performance because that's what you want, isn't it? That moment you're sat watching your own play with professional actors and then eating your own arm off because some bits are so boring, but then hopefully some other moments when the audience are really into it. That's when you really learn, isn't it? So it's it, his course is fantastic. I know that people who've done that course all stick together and make friends and brilliant. Then on the 18th of May, we have Godot is a Woman. And I know I'm not supposed to have favourite shows that I've programmed, but I saw this at Edinburgh this year and it was just the most incredible piece. It's all about the fact that Samuel Beckett wrote Waiting for Godot and his estate blocks any woman who tries to perform it. And it is three people trying to do Waiting for Godot who are not allowed to do Waiting for Godot. I think it's absolute genius. So Great. that's a big recommendation from me. Great. Uh, on the 19th of May, we have Five Years, which is a brand new piece, which looks really, really cool and involves lots of really interesting like digital rendering and digital stuff happening during the show. And it's about, uh, they did a survey of women and 30% of women said that they would trade five years of their life for the perfect body. Wow. And this is this play follows the first woman wow. who is undergoing this procedure. Okay. Amazing. Then we have an applique workshop on the 20th of May. If you've ever wanted to try your hand at quilting or needle turn applique, then now is your moment, dear I, listeners. I bet it's really, really therapeutic. Yeah. As a crafty person myself. Yeah. I love it. And then also on the 20th of May, we have a fundraising gig for Crisis, the homelessness charity, and we share our building with them. And they're doing a music and spoken word gig called Bards and Blues, which is going to be raising money for Crisis. So for our news topic, we are going to go with political plays. So have you heard of... The play from 1973, The Cheevy at the Stag and the Black Black Oil. No. So there's a podcast called Seriously, mm. which is available. It's BBC podcast and each episode is completely different. It's like a mini documentary into a different thing. And the week that we're recording this, the most recent podcast is called What Kind of Scotland? And it is about the making of this play. And 
Achievia is a breed of sheep and all through the history of Scotland, the British, the English have been coming in and clearing the land. So we cleared it to get rid of all the people to put sheep there, the Cheviot breed. And then we cleared it to get rid of all the people to put deer there so we could go and deer hunt them. And then we cleared it all for oil. It was written by John McGrath and performed by 784 Theatre Company. And I really, really recommend listening to this podcast documentary. One of the things I found so interesting about it was that it ties in with the beginning of the Scottish independence movement. And it was broadcast on national television in Scotland just as the first SNP uh, member of parliament was elected. And it has become very tied in with that. And it made me think about political plays. And so I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about political yeah, plays. Yeah, great. So you've written two plays, King Charles III and the 47th, which are political plays. But did you think of them as being political plays when you wrote them? Well, we're going to have to interrogate this political plays thing, aren't we? I mean, what do we mean by a political play? I mean, those plays deal with politicians and they deal with the world of big P politics, I suppose. But, it, you know, we always... I remember studying theatre and the example of Pinter, I suppose, is that power is at play most of the time on some level. And so in some way you could say all plays are political because there is somebody wanting something and often they use power to get that thing. And and it, what's interesting about Pinter is that he boils that power play. He takes away often like the specific context of knowing exactly what they want or what their backstory is or what's going on. And all you're left with is the power play which is sort of fascinating. But you wouldn't necessarily say he was a big P political writer because he's not dealing in a sort of David Hare way with the Labour Party or with a specific political context. So I think, well, I think generally speaking, it's like political plays tend to reflect the ideological concerns of the generation that write them. So you had the 70s playwrights who generally were very leftish, very socialist, borderline communist, if not full-on communist, and wrote plays that tried to activate the population closer towards some sort of either socialist or communist revolution. And then, you know, you can chart the collapse of that ideology through the 80s and then into the 90s. I started seeing the plays of the 90s, which are far more concerned with the sort of chaos of a collapse of the political regime and the collapse of ideology. And you get playwrights like Sarah Kane, her play Blasted deals with a war crashing through a European hotel room wall which is not dissimilar, you know, I think actually there's a real link to what's happening in Ukraine at the moment is that we think we're safe and we understand the world and then war crashes through the window a bit closer to home than we might imagine. And that's political in a sense of mass power, but it's not ideologically, you know, you wouldn't say it's necessarily a left or right play in that sense. And then, you know, recently, I think obviously there've been a lot of plays about the politics of identity and that's become very strong in people's creative thoughts and and what they want to write about. So I think, you know, I think the question I sort of sits underneath a lot of this stuff is what's the purpose of your art? What are you doing it for, isn't it? It's sort of, are you making your art to achieve an end? What Brecht called a Lehrstück, I think, which means a learning play, which he, he also called a didactic play, which exists to do a thing. It's instrumental. It says we're doing this play to teach the audience this so that they go and revolt or they, they vote this way, or they do this, or the audience doesn't understand, and I'm going to show them through the drama what they should be doing or what should be the case. Or indeed, you might say it's an educative tool that I'm going to show them what's happened. These are all valid, by the way, but they're different choices. Or you might say, 
I'm more concerned with the human being in all its weird and wonderful dimensions. And that includes power, but it also includes love and it also includes betrayal and existential thoughts and religious thoughts and all different sorts of things, in which case it might be part of the mix, but politics isn't the full. And you don't want an audience to come away with any message or effect. You want them just to, you want Iceland to think about it like meaning resonating out. And in that, you're likely to be focusing more on the characters and the specifics of the story you're telling and letting the meaning more reside to be a bit more open in the in the audience. All these things are um, totally valid, but there's not one right way to go. And I think that's one of the thoughts that maybe you can't, you don't make a choice about as a writer, but I think you you start to instinctively get a sense of what's the engine driving you to write. Is it to explore the humanity and truth? And even if the truth is inconvenient for the audience or for indeed for you, you might be exploring something and find that the truth doesn't fit with your prearranged opinion, but you're going to present it anyway. Are you that sort of artist or are you the sort of artist who believes in something and is using theatre to achieve your campaign ends, to make social, direct social change? I think it's worth interrogating that because I think your tools and how you write and what you want to happen in that room are quite different if you make those two different choices. But I think that's that difference of intention sits underneath, for me, the distinction between what some people call a political play and what you might call just a play. So when you were writing yours, was it that you wrote the story and then you sat back and you thought, okay, I didn't realise that this was a political thing and now I see that it is? Or did you set out to go, I want to write a play that, that says something about the politics of Trump? No, I think with both of them, for me, they're not political in the sense of me wanting the audience to come to a conclusion which I have already worked out. They're exploring things that I don't necessarily know the answer to. So in Charles, it's it's about, I have a very mixed feeling about the monarchy. I have a sort of Republican brain, which thinks it's, the whole thing is just ridiculous and a massive waste of money. And what year is this? And come on. And then a monarchist heart, which gets very moved by the whole pageantry and the whole thing. And I think that's quite a good place to write a play is where you've got an interior contradiction in yourself because it means you can get on both sides of the argument and, and you can really get behind characters. And so I was more exploring that contradiction and what that means for us as a country. Is it such a crucial part of our national identity, the royal family? And also, indeed, part of a lot of people's their personal identity. When it feels such a historical, irrelevant thing, potentially, and how much power do they really wield? That's what I was exploring. I didn't have an answer that I was going to get to in that. And then actually that play ended up being about fathers and sons and inheritance and all that. And then with, with the Trump play, it was more about thinking, the starting point was thinking Trump as a Richard III figure in the theatre that was seductive for the audience. And the audience that, of course, we would all be against Trump. I mean, there's no question about that. And we find him abhorrent. I doubt very much in all the you know, many people that came to the old Vic where the play was on, if any of them voted Trump. I mean, maybe a few, but I didn't expect that. So then what's interesting is to spend some time with him in the space, in reality, in that room, and be seduced by him and see why he's so persuasive. And for me to try and get behind the arguments that he's making, and also the tone and what he does to a crowd, and then compare it with what often to me seem quite weak, democratic by which I mean the part, the Democratic Party presentation of their ideas. And, uh, you know, in my head through that was someone said to me when Trump was against Hillary, all of us could name four Trump policies. And they said, right, name four Hillary policies. 
can't do it. And and what is that? Why is that? And I think that was really what I was exploring and the psychology of Trump. And that's what we talked to Bertie a lot about. Bertie Carvel, who played Trump in the play, and he's a master at getting under the skin of people we wouldn't think were so nice and fully inhabiting them. And it's just, it was a really lovely collaboration to go on that journey with him and really try and work out what's happening with Trump and and not not really caricature him, not simply mock him or do a sort of satire, but to go, what is driving him? Why does he love an audience? What can he do that no one else can do? Why, why, even if you hate him, do you click on the link to see what he's done next? That's the palette of those plays. But as I say, I don't think of them as sort of political plays in terms of having a, an endpoint any more than any other play I've written. They're sort of places to explore something that I'm interested in. And what advice would you give to someone who wants to write a political play? Well, I suppose it would be starting off with going, what are your intentions? And is it a play set in the world of politics? In which case, I would say that's brilliant, but just make sure you're also engaging in the humanity of these people. What's the human story going on through all of it? And what's the the weird, wonderful, deep psychology that you're going to figure out within these politicians? And if it's a, if it's a play where it's essentially a campaigning play to achieve an, a social end that you want to get to, then I think I would maybe raise a flag to say there have been plays like that. But if you look at the greatest plays of the last hundred years, mostly their message is it's more complicated than you think. It's more nuanced. It's more complex. They're actually not instrumental plays. Most of those plays are not trying to achieve one thing. So I would probably say that and just be aware of that. But I, equally, I think it is a completely valid thing to do. The challenge is how you, the audience isn't way ahead of you. It, especially if they're a theatre-going audience, they're likely to be pretty liberal. And also they've made the effort to come out to the theatre, which is a very narrow subset of people. So genuinely, make sure you talk to that audience, not an imagined audience that has a different set of views on Twitter who wouldn't buy a ticket to your play in a million years because you want to create something in the room that moment. So those people in the room, what's their hypocrisy? What are they feeling? What do they say and then do something different? Or where haven't they really thought it through? Or where is there more nuance than they realise? You know, I think that having a bit of tension with the audience is how you create something in a room. And it often gives the actors something to play as well. What are we covering in the course this week? This week, we are covering story and dialectic. The quote that I sort of massively reduced down a Tony Kushner, the playwright Tony Kushner, who wrote Angels in America, reduced down his complex and intelligent thought to a very reduced version when I said that he generally said that screenwriting and TV and film is more narrative driven and theatre is more dialectic driven. Of course, both do both, but in terms of their focus, that's where they are. So I thought we do the first half of the session on story. We talk about story. And then at the end, so the last bit, we'll talk about dialectic. So in terms of story, that distinction that Kushner's talking about in terms of narrative and dialectic essentially is saying that screen work is often about what's next. You're watching it going, what's the next plot development? What happens next? What happens next? And that stage work is more about what's going on now. What are these two people doing to each other in this moment right now? And you're fascinated by it. It's the liveness of the present moment. Again, obviously, screen work can also be interesting, live, what's happening now. And stage work can be about what's next. But it's about the focus, I think. 
And I think what that means for me with story in the theatre is that it doesn't tend to carry all the weight of the meaning. It doesn't tend to carry the weight of keeping the ball in the air or keeping our interest. Other things tend to do that, the reveal of character, meaning, dialogue, the play of ideas, the play of people, the behaviour that we're watching, being in the presence of the actor doing the thing. On stage, it's far more likely that you could start with a five-minute moment with no dialogue of a character just making a cup of tea, and it'd be absolutely fascinating because we're sort of trained in that space to go, what's happening now? Who are they making the tea for? They've got two cups or one. You know, we're watching it in that way. Again, you could do that on screen, but there's something about the, the using a single camera, even the choice of shots is starting to tell a narrative story. And so even that, you're watching the story of the cup of tea, if that makes sense. Anyway, what that means in theatre is that when I've thought about this, and I'm trying to only sort of talk about principles that I actually use, what I don't have in my head is what you can read in a sort of, if you buy a book by a guy called Robert McKee, who writes these, does these huge seminars and writes these books full of theory about story, all sorts of beats and things and things you should do and structures. And, and there's all different books telling you that there's a five-act structure, there's a three-act structure. There's a, and in, in screenwriting, they're really useful and you can really get into them and actually really use them. And you have to be aware of them in, in, in some ways. But in theatre, I realised I have just a much more sort of basic sense of story, and that's what sits underneath. So in the session, what I'm going to do is get everybody to write, and this is something that you could do at home, get everyone to write a story they know, like a Disney film or something like that, and probably one that we all will know, but take out the nouns. So take out the names and take out the names of the places. And so what you end up with is uh, a son is in a village and an old man comes and says they have to go on a quest for a ring and just to write that story in one paragraph. And then they're going to pair up, share those stories and try and come up with one story that fits both of their stories. So there is, maybe it's, they've got, you know, one's got a, a woman and one's got a man. And so they've got to say a person is in, and one's in a village and one's in a city is in a place with houses and so on and so on. So they end up with one story that they can agree fits both of theirs. And then that pair is going to join up with another pair until they've got four. They're going to try and come up with one story for the four of them. And then we're going to join up all together in the group and see if we can come up with one story to rule them all that fits everybody's story in the room. And through that, we'll understand hopefully what the, the common elements of story are. And since we're doing the podcast, I thought I'd just say what I tend to find those common elements are and certainly the ones that are sort of stuck in my head which is there is a character there is a main character in an environment and then something happens that sends them on a journey either metaphorical or actual in order to achieve a goal and they have to overcome obstacles on the way to achieving that goal then at some point sort of between halfway and two-thirds they have doubts and they have worries and concerns and come to a new realization. And then there's some sort of big fight towards the end and they return home either metaphorically or literally and order is restored, but maybe something has changed or indeed order is not restored, but their journey comes to an end. That sounds massively vague, but actually for me, that's enough in theater to just police what you're doing, to give it a structure, give it a shape has it got a climactic ending? It's essentially what you're saying with that fight at the end. What is their journey? What are they? What do they want across this story? And what are the obstacles they're trying to overcome? Have they got a moment of doubt in that story? 
And also at the beginning, I do find this useful. It's, it's become a bit of a joke, this idea of the inciting incident. But it, for me, that all that means is that they're in a place where everything's normal and then something unusual happens. And just knowing that gives you some sense of structure and you can play with when those beats happen in a story. So I was very aware writing um, Dr. Foster that the inciting incident, the unusual thing happens four minutes in to the first episode. And that was sort of quite deliberate to go, they're watching, what was it on before? Bake Off. It was, it was when Bake Off was on BBC. And I wanted that audience, the ones who were watching Bake Off and hadn't remembered to switch off the television, to be into the story as quickly as possible. So I set a limit. I said, we've got to get to the inciting incident in under four minutes. So if you watch the opening of that, she's rocketing through all the characters. We're setting up the world. We're saying how normal everything is. Everything's great. Husband, son, colleagues, all the way, all the way, all the way to a scarf. And then there's the hair. And the hair on the scarf, which tells her, hang on, is my husband having an affair, happens before the title's and I'm not the first person to do that. If you look at network shows that went out on broadcast networks, that was a trick they did to get you in. So it's awareness of these markers and then how you play with them across the evening can be really useful, I think. What we're going to do after that is we're going to find some sort of story, a new story that we all know, all the different events of it. And when I've done this before, it normally always, it used to be about Prince Harry and now it's about Harry and Meghan. And whatever I think we might land up, land on, we almost always end up doing it about Harry and Meghan. I'm not sure why, but that seems to be something that everybody knows all the different beats of. We'll put all those beats on the board. So from the moment Harry was born, the death of his mother, him in the army and, you know, the Nazi uniform that he wore and all this and, and all the way through to where we are now. Then we're going to have a discussion about if you were to dramatize that and turn that into a play, which we're not going to do. But if you did, you could dramatize the whole thing from beginning to end his entire life. But is there a section of that which contains a story which is going to be able to tell and articulate the reason you're telling that story? So which bit of that contains the actual story you want to tell? Because often I think that's one thing we struggle with is going, well, I know about my characters, I know about the world or whatever, but where's the actual story? So we're going to look at that and discuss what informs those choices and how also one of the advantages of choosing a section is that you compress the time frame down and that increases the tension and the pressure on the characters. And essentially we'll get to the point where we'll probably discuss about it being a turning point and a one-way door, probably for Harry if he's our main character, which is the moment he makes the decision of his life and cannot go back. So that's what will be the point we're looking for. And then we'll talk about how we apply the story structure to that chunk of time. So Harry's normal, and then there's an exciting incident, and then it gets to the climax where he has to finally get what he wants or lose what he wants. And then finally today, we'll talk about if we've got time, and if we don't, then maybe we'll do this next week, but we'll talk about dialectic, which is a sort of argument. It's two ideas, one idea against another. And theatre, obviously, because it's got as a dialogue form, thrives on this. And also it's good for an audience because some of my favourite experiences have been when there's, there's a line on stage and half the audience laugh and the other half look at the ones who have laughed and go, why are you laughing at that? That's disgusting. And they've completely received it in different ways and you get a dialogue happening within the audience. And if you can do that, then you really start to feel that the room is alive. So it's something that we are perhaps less good at now than we used to is holding two completely different viewpoints in our head and being able to argue both sides. So we're going to practice a bit of that. To start with, everyone's going to come up with a opinion or belief that they don't know the answer to. It's a contentious one. There's people on both sides and they have they are yet to come down one way or the other. It's interesting 
when I first did this exercise 15 years ago, everyone could come up with 10 of those straight away. Now people really struggle, which is fascinating. And I don't know what that means, but it's something to do with the need to have an opinion quicker than we used to. We used to not need to have an opinion on most things. And now there's an obligation to have an opinion on everything. So anyway, it's trying to find one that you haven't yet figured out your opinion on. And then we'll pair up and we'll practice making the argument one side, making the argument the other side, and then swapping around so that you can make the argument both ways. And then maybe we'll do a bit of um, writing that into uh, a scene between two characters. And why does it matter to them, this argument? So you're starting to take that intellectual argument and make it personal within the characters. And that's probably as far as we'll go. But hopefully, if we can do all that in one session, it will sort of show those two ways of keeping the ball in the air. One is a central character on a journey. What's going to happen next? Are they going to achieve their goal, which is sort of front-footed, forward-facing? And the other one is in the importance of the moments when actually characters turn and go, no, we're going to have this out and it's going to be thrilling. And of course, actually, your play is probably going to be a mix of those two things. But yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I have two questions for you. The first one is from Nadia. Sometimes you might need to create a character who is so unlike yourself that you have no idea how to convey their life experience in a way that isn't shallow, patronising or inaccurate. You know how their actions are going to operate within the plot and you know what kind of energy and emotions they will display in the play's action. But how do you step into their shoes and understand the backstory that makes them who they are? How have you done this with some of your characters? There's a couple of answers to this question, I think. I think one is about, firstly, that impulse to get inside the viewpoint and the experience of people that are not me and to pretend to have experiences that I haven't had is the thing that got me into theatre. It's the thing that I love about it. I write very few characters that have the same experiences or demographic as me. I love writing characters that don't, and I always have. And this is maybe not where the culture is at the moment, necessarily. I think there's certainly truth in it, is that I actually think that just as we all share a lot of our DNA. I think given if you look back on the plays we have from the ancient Greeks, a lot of their concerns were the same concerns we have now, even though they lived thousands of years ago in a completely different culture. And I think if you look at the stories from different cultures around the world at different times, human beings do have shared things in common that drive their lives. We're all going to die. We're all going to suffer. We'll seem to want to love in some form or feel loneliness or most people seem to want sex and most people have moments of violence or struggle to, to protect their dignity, for instance. These things are, are common. I suppose my instinct has always been that there's a shared humanity and that often I write, I sort of trust that a bit and write into that and that the particular experiences of someone are not their whole self. Then the other side, the other joyful side of it is, of course, their experiences do make them very different. And I think then you're talking about the balance that we talked about a few weeks ago between your personal experience, what you see in the world and your imagination. And it might be that if someone's very different to your experience, you have to rely a bit more on what you see in the world. You have to go meet some people and you have to really spend some time researching it, probably in person rather than reading about it. Because I think for theatre, that, that's where you're going to get the specific detail that isn't academic or isn't the research that someone else has done. It's like you and someone else having a conversation for three hours. You're going to notice something about the behaviour, which then specifically you can put in a play. That's where you start to find something to latch onto. Don't underestimate your imagination. I think the thing you have to police is that you are fully giving that person their experience and their due within the play. And I think you have to trust that also you're not going to represent that other person's real experience. So you're creating a fiction. 
So for instance, when I wrote my play Cock, I was writing about a gay couple and a gay man who fell in love with a woman and then doesn't know which way to turn. I'm not gay and I've not been in that situation. I was talking about this earlier today, actually. I was Someone said, what's, what's the most fulfilling thing you've had in theatre? Someone came up to me a couple of years after that and said that when they were 15 or 16, this was 10, 15 years ago, the idea of fluid sexuality wasn't so prevalent and they felt like they were being put in boxes. Seeing that play and seeing that performance, it gave them elbow room to explore the fluidity of their sexuality and that they still carry that with them. To me, that proves that even though I hadn't had that experience, the putting it on stage, the imagining of it was valid enough that somebody who had had that experience could find worth in it. And I think that we have to trust that in theatre. And it's not to in any way invalidate writing of your own experience. So many wonderful plays and writing that come deeply from someone's own experience. But the wonderful thing about theatre is, as well as doing that, you can balance that with writing outside of your own experience. So for instance, I think Lucy Preble writes men amazingly. She's not a man. And maybe that's why she sees men in a different way than from the outside. And if she was a man... There's a validity to being objective about something and being able to write into it on stage. And all this stuff is complicated and nuanced. And I suppose the other thing I I should just say about it is that when I say I write outside my experience, I don't write that far outside of my experience because I couldn't. So I think it's also about just knowing what your limitations are. So the characters in Cock, two of them are gay, but they are, broadly speaking, in a relatively affluent middle-class British setting and their class and the way they speak is quite similar to me. You know, one thing is outside of my experience, but a lot of the rest of it isn't. And so I think you have to have an instinct for that. Don't be stupid about it. And the serious question of that is, are you the best person to write this story? And if in the end you go, I'm not, then write a different story because you will be the best person to write a story. You just need to find it. The next question comes from Bella. When you write a play, are you thinking about the staging? Example, you've said before that you wrote your play Cock in the form of a cockfight, but were you thinking about the way the stage was designed? I wasn't thinking about the way the stage was designed per se, although I think in the original play, I don't know if it says it in the play text, I wrote that the audience is looking down on the actors because in a cockfight ring, that's the relationship. You're looking down on these animals, so you have a position of power over them. But really those stage directions, the way I'm imagining it, is more like the rules of a sporting event or a game. That's why I imagine what the dynamic is in the room. If you described a football match, you might describe where the goals are and where the audience is sat and how high the audience is and how we see the players and where they stand. But you probably wouldn't describe what's on the hoardings around the edge or how it's lit or even the size of the pitch. Or are we talking a stadium or are we talking a, a small club? All of those different versions are still football. So you're defining what the rules of the game are. And I feel like that's when I'm thinking about a play and what the form of it is. I'm more thinking, if you had the minimal resources, what are the minimal resources to play the game of this play? And boiling it down to that. And then the designer comes in and, of course, either completely sometimes ignores that in a glorious way or more often takes that as a starting point and then builds the design upon and within it. And that's what often you do in a play is to open the door to collaboration. Don't forget to send your own questions to Mike info at oldfirestation.org.uk and keep us updated on anything you're writing and things that you're up to. How to Write a Play is hosted by Mike Bartlett and Alex Coke. Editing and music is by Hannah Gallardo Parsons and it's produced by the Old Fire Station, Oxford. Please support us by giving five-star ratings and reviews wherever you get your podcasts to help us get seen by more theatre makers. This show receives no exterior funding. If you'd like to support the work of the Old Fire Station, please donate at oldfirestation.org.uk.